Now, like uh, this morning, if you'll look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, we're going to look at that section 1 to 13. It does kind of follow on from all the other sermons we've been doing in Hebrews, but I hope it also stands alone uh, quite well if you're just visiting here with us for the day. But by way of introduction, I want to say a couple of things uh, which you may uh, be more likely to be aware of have you, if, uh, if you've been here as we've gone through. Because uh, there's clearly in this chapter uh, a reminder of a pattern uh, that we follow when we're going through Hebrews, when we're going through this letter to this Jewish people, Jewish Christian people who are tempted, as we've seen before, to turn their backs on Jesus and go back to ritualistic religion. And you may have picked up already. If you haven't picked it up, and I would encourage you just to go home today and, and read through up to chapter 12 again, and you'll find that it's very clear, and it's very obvious, and it's very helpful. And the pattern is, uh, in the first place, there's two things. The first place is uh, that uh, the writer is modeling the letter in such a way that uh, he wants truth to change our behavior. So he presents truth, and then he says why that should make a difference to what we're doing. So he's saying truth's really important, and truth's important enough to change the way we live as Christians and what we think. And he does that by using this link word that we've seen before, therefore. Okay, so it's at the beginning of chapter 12 again. Therefore, that links what has gone before with what is going to come after. And basically what he's saying is that there's truth. Therefore, because there's truth, this is how it should affect your behavior. And that comes through right through the book. This is the sixth, therefore, it's hard to say, the sixth therefore that there is in this book so far. So there's a clear link right through the book from the truth that he wants to tell to how it should affect the way we live. Therefore. So these kind of, you, you, sometimes when you're looking, reading through it quickly, you can, you can get that picture. You can see where the links are and where the structure is. And so he's linking uh, truth and action. So he says, because, for example, in the previous ones, he's saying, because we know that Christ is in heaven, because we know we belong to him, because he's given us his promises, because Christ is our great high priest, because it all comes from this amazing Old Testament pattern, uh, because he's in a relationship with us, because he's gifted us life, because he loves us, therefore, let us, in this case, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, let us run with perseverance the race set before us. So we've got all these, remember I mentioned them before, the salad statements, the lettuce ones. There's all these lettuce that follow after the therefores, the truths. So that pattern comes through again. So let us fix our thoughts. Let us hold on. Let us be confident. Let us have peace. Let us draw near. Let us keep together. Let's keep worshipping. Let us run with perseverance. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So there's always... There's these triggers, there's this pattern that happens. So there's the therefores because of the truth. And therefore, let us live in a certain way. And that's very important. If uh, you look with me at John's Gospel, chapter 8. Jesus says there in verse 32. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, If you hold on to my teaching, you really are my disciples. We've got the same thing here. Then you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. So really what's happening here is that the writer to the Hebrews is saying, I'm presenting you with truth. And if you live in the light of this truth, and as you follow that truth, it will set you free as Christians because they were, the danger was they were falling back into enslavement and into ritualism, and they weren't allowing the truth of Jesus to set them free. So this great significant pattern is that propositional, objective truth, and the promises that stem from that are really important for us, because they trigger how we live and how we act, and there's a great uh, link there. They mold our conscience, they govern our thinking, Uh, it, it teaches us how we should live. So the truth matters because it molds and guides and and governs our behavior because we're in a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, if you follow my teaching, the truth will set you free. And this is freedom, absolute freedom. Uh, Not absolute, absolute, I don't mean absolute freedom. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. But there's freedom in following Christ that we are created to be in freedom with Jesus Christ. So the pattern is that firstly, let truth it changes your behavior. So, so if we come to church, for example, and we listen to the sermon, and we give it marks out of 10, and then we go away and it makes no difference whatsoever to our lives, not because it's my sermon or anyone's sermon, whoever's here preaching from the truth, then we haven't, we haven't grasped what it's about. God has brought you today so that his truth And every time you open scripture, God has brought you to scripture to look at that so that it will mold and guide and govern and change and mature and develop and deepen and and all these things, our lives, as we allow it to change us. If we don't allow it to change us, we will become hardened to it. And we'll think, "Ah, I've heard it all before. It's not deep enough. It's not new enough. It's not fresh enough. It's not vibrant enough. But we need to let the truth transform our lives. The propositional, objective truth of God's word. Let the truth change your behavior. That's the first pattern that we see in this book. And the other pattern that stems from these things, or stems from these words, is uh, that we, uh, we change in community. We change in community. So we have all these uh, statements, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us, let us, let us. This is great leadership. This is great teaching. This is the best kind of teacher that comes alongside his people and doesn't say, you know, uh, batter them down and say, you must do this and you need to change and you need to be like this. He says, we're in this together. And change is a community reality for us because we need each other's loyalty. We need each other's support. We need each other's strength. We don't need to batter one another down. We don't need to point out people's faults generally because we, people know their own faults. In friendship and in love, we come alongside people and uh, we recognize that we are in this together and we point people to Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. It's not that we just need each other. It's not just that we're a happy band of people together and we sing and we joy and everything's wonderful. And oh, isn't it great being together? It's not just that. It's that together we focus on Jesus. So the aim is not just to be together and be a happy band, but it's to be together looking at Jesus and encouraging each other to look to Jesus and building one another up to look to Jesus and to see that. Not relying on the people around us, because we're all sinners and we'll all let one another down, but helping each other to look 
to Jesus Christ. That's really refreshing, isn't it? Sometimes the church is just a, a cauldron of... Uh, what is it? A cauldron of... A cauldron of... Uh, looking at what everyone else is doing in order to find fault. But it should be a place where we build each other up and encourage one another to follow and look to Jesus. And here we're told to run the race with perseverance. We've got this picture of the race and to fix our eyes on Jesus. So the pattern is that we let truth change how we live. And we, we, we do that change in community. City groups, friendships, prayer partners, prayer groups, meeting together, coming together in worship, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. All these things we do. It's not just my private walk with God at the top of Arthur's seat. However good and meaningful that might be for us to do every so often. We need one another and God has chosen to bring us together to help and encourage one another. So that's the pattern. Then secondly, uh, and my main point here, is that he gives us in this section two illustrations which kind of intertwine a little bit. I'll not, I'll, it's difficult to completely separate them out, but they are different illustrations, but they do merge a little bit. So forgive my confusion there. Two illustrations to help us what it means to run this race with perseverance that's marked out for us. This Christian walk. What it is to follow Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Give us two examples. And the the examples come in this context, which you know and we all know together, the context that the Christian life is a battle. It's really difficult. It's not just, you know, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. It's It's a tough battle. We battle with sin in our own heart, pride and selfishness and ignorance and arrogance. We battle with attractions outside of us, which will take us away from Christ, entanglements that will uh, move us away from following Jesus, from opposition, from ridicule, from illness, from loss, from death, from grievous, all kinds of things make it difficult uh, for us to be Christians. And this is an example, this is, uh, in this context, he gives us these two examples which help us to be fit to run the race to um, be holy, to be Christ-like. And the great thing is, it's not a self-help manual. Because it all must be predicated on this truth, fix your eyes on Jesus. So it's all about pointing us to Jesus, but it's illustrations that help us to do that. Two illustrations, you know them already. You'll have already picked them out. They're very simple, they're very clear. One is a race. Obvious. Probably a marathon race as opposed to a 100 meter sprint. There's one or two people have had a 100 meter sprint in the Christian life and died very young. But most people, for most people, it's a marathon race. And uh, we have that picture right at the beginning of this great cloud of witnesses uh, in a stadium, spectators, and there's this race and uh, that you, you, you get off, throw off everything that would entangle you and you run with pace. So that's the first example that we're given here. And... Uh, I'll mention both of these. I'll come back to them. The second example is a loving parent. So the second section from verse, probably from about four, five onwards, uh, it talks about the Lord's discipline and and the Lord uh, disciplining those he loves. And then goes on to say uh, in verse seven, for what son is not disciplined by his father 
and speaks about the love of a parent, a father, who will discipline their children. So we have that example. So there's two examples. There's a a marathon race and there's also a loving parent. And uh, both help us to think about running the Christian race. Now the marathon race is a great example. It's tough, isn't it? Uh, It's tough in preparation. You can't, generally speaking, just breeze into a marathon race and run 26 miles. You need to prepare. Our mental attitude is really important in a race. Good to have an inspiring coach to help us. We need discipline and self-denial. I'll never forget the, uh, this isn't a marathon, but it's a a race. Uh, Steve Redgrave, who was the great uh, British rower, and watching a program about his preparations for the Olympics, or, or Chris Hoy, I think I've mentioned him before, program about his preparations, or Andy Murray, I'm reading a book about his journey to Wimbledon, and the amazing, remarkable human commitment that they gave to their sport, and the, the self-denial, the, the friendships that they, they were not able to keep up, the focus, the loneliness, the diet, all these things were tremendously uh, significant and uh, energy-sapping in their lives. And then maybe particularly uh, these entanglements, you know, these legitimate things, things that most people their age would enjoy normally. But then actually before the race, there's that very specific time where they get rid of anything that would entangle. So you see Usain Bolt or uh, any of these doing, say, the 100 meters or, or even a marathon and they've kept warm and then just before the race starts, they strip off their, uh, their tops and they, then they take off their tracksuit bottoms and they put them all in a big box so all they have is they're down to the basics and the swimmers at the Olympics the same fill a box with all the things that they've kept warm and the headphones and everything else that they've used to distract them and uh, they're ready then for the race and then they come in there's this great crowd inspiring them on and uh, in the race they've got to be single minded they've got to keep their, their eye on, on the finishing line They've got to be aware of the race and the runners as well as the finishing line. I don't know if all of this is relevant. Maybe I'm just going away in a fancy. But some of it is, for example, years and years ago, I remember as a small boy watching a famous race, a long-distance race, where they had a pacemaker because they wanted to make it a really fast race. And the pacemaker went so far ahead that he went on to win the race because he didn't give up. And he was just kind of nobody in terms of the, the famous runners. Because all the runners were watching each other and the big shots were kind of vying for position. And this guy was legging it half a, half a kind of uh, circuit ahead of them. And he said, wait a minute, I'm going to win the race if I keep going. And he did. Because the runners had taken their eye off what was happening around them. And they let their instinct hit, uh, take over sometimes if, if they struggle or if they hit a wall. If any of you have run a marathon he says, pretending he has, which he hasn't. Then you might hit a wall at a certain time. And at these points, your training, your instinct will come in. So that is the marathon race. I'll come back to that, talking about the gospel. The second example is the loving father, really from verses 5 right through to 11, which where he talks about uh, discipline and hardship in the Christian life. And he relates it to your upbringing and saying, well, that's what happens when we grow up Now, I guess the loving father, loving parent can also be a coach. So there's a bit of mixing in there between the two analogies, Judy Murray being an example. Uh, But uh, our our loving parents here, and your loving parents, if you had loving parents, they they disciplined you. 
because they trained you and loved you and wanted you to, to grow up uh, fit for, for living in the society in which we live. They were building foundations. And in the early stages, that was sometimes harder than other times in life. Although sometimes you know, there was the teenage angst and all that that makes it difficult. But we, we want to uh, teach them about how to live in community, how to live in family, how to live in the home, how to take responsibility, how to relate to one another, how to be forgiven, how to forgive, how to recognize the importance of God and Christ in home and in church, and where that is so important and so significant, to correct them and discipline them in love, to care for them, and to show them where they're going wrong. You know, the kids know, children know that love brings with it parameters. And they know that actions have consequences. And wrong actions have consequences and need to be disciplined. And moral guidance in the home is tremendously significant. You know, can you think of how appalling it is to see situations where parents have no interest in disciplining and loving their children in that way. And the children go wild. And the children are in control at an early age. Okay. Two very easy examples for us to grasp hold of. How do we apply these examples in this uh, particular chapter? Very simply, in two ways. Uh, Yeah. First is, in this battle, which is the Christian life, we need discipline. We need to recognize that discipline is an important part, not just of... uh, uh, the reality of of the battle that we're living in as Christians, but recognizing this is how God works in our lives to bring us closer to himself, to draw us into fellowship with him, and to uh, be able to endure hardship when we recognize it's part of living. Otherwise, he says in verse uh, 3, we'll grow weary and and lose heart. That gives a picture of hitting the wall and just flopping. And giving up halfway through the race, just collapsing. That's, what it, that's the, that's the uh, visual picture that these words give. Of just giving up. Say, I can't go on. It's hopeless. And he says, so that you don't do that. To recognize that uh, this is what the Christian life is. So today you'll go from here. And you'll be tested. You'll be opposed. You'll be ridiculed. You'll be tempted. You'll be amazed at the darkness of your own heart at the depth of sin that's there, as it will be exposed at times. And you'll realize that so often you're kept from utter and complete degradation because of the parameters of society around you and because of your family and other things there. And you'll have competing desires and you'll have opposite attractions and you'll have ambitions that will distract you and uh, will entangle you and will keep you from Christ. Some of them may be in their own way legitimate, they might not be overt sin, but they will be things that will keep you from Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying in this passage, because he's speaking to a people who are struggling with opposition and persecution, keep going. I will use this to, to draw you closer to myself. There's a reason behind these things. You know, it's so easy to forget for us when things are going badly and difficult in our lives it's so easy for us just to give up and to think that God's abandoned us. He doesn't care anymore. It should be easy and life is great. Grace is not cheap and he's saying here, I love you. I'm your father. I care about what's happening 
And I want you to recognize this is part of belonging to Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, Consider him, Christ, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you may not grow weary and grow hard. If Christ went through these battles and he was perfect, how much more are we going to go through both battles from outside, but also internal battles uh, with our own hearts? And the writer is saying here, it's not just about starting well. It's not just about having a few days of prayer partners and then just getting fed up and giving up. He says it's about persevering. It's about keeping on going. It's not just about having a good couple of years in the Christian church and then when everything goes pear-shaped, just walking away and, and giving up the Christian faith. He's saying stick with it. Have a right mindset. Because there will be difficulties. And God is using that because he loves us and he's molding us and he's changing us. And he doesn't want sin and its cancerous effects to overwhelm us. And he will deal with that in our lives. One of the fruits of the spirit that we often forget. Because we think, oh, those things, fruits, love and joy and peace and patience. And all these beautiful things that make us so adorable. It's uh, self-control. You know, we think of the spirit leading us and and taking us into places and being wonderfully uh, free and easy and uh, being led as God will guide us. And yet he says one of his fruits is self-control. Knowing that discipline, uh, dealing with sin and pride, making us fit to be his followers. Remember that when God, we see, I mentioned this last week, I think when we pray about sins, it's not, we, we blame God, well, God isn't taking away that sin in my heart. And he's saying, I might not take that desire away, but I will give you the strength and the courage and the ability and the power and the freedom to resist it. Very often it's, it's not really about God, it's about what we want. And if we think and allow ourselves to be stripped deep down, it's because we want these things that they're not being taken from us. We want them more than him. But he's doing this. Why is he doing it? Why is there discipline? Why is there hardship? Because he says in verse 11, uh, no discipline, of course. It's, it's not about being pleasant, is it? It's not about just having this terrible attitude that, you know, bring it on. But rather, he says, no discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, have, a, have perspective in the midst of battle and in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of illness, in the midst of trial. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So God's molding us. He's training us. Do you find that offensive? The idea of God taking our lives and training us in righteousness? He does it because he has, he has started this great work. He's, as we will see, he's the author. And he's the perfecter. And how is he going to perfect? He's going to do it by dealing and training, training us in righteousness by his grace and by his power. So uh, we need discipline. And the second thing is, we also is we need tactics we need tactics in this Christian life this race that we're living this uh, race that we need to run that's marked out for us that God knows the end from the beginning of this race remember that you're not coming today and looking forward and thinking I wonder what, God, I wonder what the future's going to hold God knows that's what gives us confidence and grace but we need tactics in this race as we listen to him the first and I'll just go very briefly. One is get rid of the entanglements and the sin that so easily besets us. That's what the, these let us statements are as we run this race. The tactics are that we need to recognize that we are people of change. Okay? 
If you're coming in here, if I'm coming in here thinking, I'm going to be the same for the next 20 years coming to St. Columbus, or the last 20 years, then again, we've lost sight of what the gospel is about. That we are to be those who are seeing what's happening in our lives and applying it spiritually and saying, God is dealing with me and he wants me to get rid of the entanglements that are keeping me from growing as a Christian. So he's saying, be single-minded. You know what I said about the marathon? You need, the mental attitude is probably more important than anything. And you know these guys that don't win Wimbledon or don't win a trophy? It's not often to do with ability, ultimately, which is very important. It's to do with their winning ability, the mental attitude they have, and the ability to overcome uh, defeat and opposition. And so spiritually, our mental attitude is very important. So you come today, and I come today, and Christ is our Lord. He's our sovereign king. He's our God. And uh, we need to think about what is taking up all our time. Are we wasting time? Are we distracted by a million and one different things that keep us from Jesus? Legitimate may, though they may be in their own right. Are we harboring in our private lives secret sins that nobody in the public domain will know about and, and everything's fine and well? This is our daily reality that we are to get rid, let us therefore get rid of the entanglements and the, the sins. Two different things, really. Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's deal with that. So that focuses your life today and it focuses mine. It says that there's something bigger than just listening. Something more important than just knowing the truth. It says we take that truth, the pattern of this book, and we apply that truth because of this. Because he's our loving father, remember, he will discipline us. If he doesn't discipline us, we are bastards. That's what he's saying. That's what this truth says here. We are illegitimate children that we have no place. He loves us so much. And every parent here knows how much we love and care for our children. And that's what he's doing with us. And it may seem hard. Hardest thing, you know. <laughs> you know, we've said as parents, this is hurting me more than it's hurting you. <laughs> and it sometimes that probably wasn't the case uh, as parents because we were sinners and we feared and we're fallen. But with Christ, that's true. He, he loves us and he disciplines us for our good and because he cares and uh, wants us to bear this harvest of righteousness and peace. So we get rid of there. Then, of course, we, in this run, we persevere by fixing our eyes on Jesus. I just love that injunction, that command for us. It's so important. And earlier he talks about fixing our thoughts on Jesus. You know, because what it does is it moves, it, away, it moves the ultimate responsibility away from looking like other Christians or being a really great church or following the example of other people and says, for all of us, let's get together and look towards this best coach of all, this coach who knows us and who has been there. You know, he has, he's been there for joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. He's run the race and he's run the race so we can be empowered to be forgiven and walk with him and run, and, and run the race ourselves. You know, that's why we can soar on wings like eagles. We can run and not be weary. We can walk and not faint uh, so that we can, as we say in verse 13, make the level paths for our feet because he's empowering us and he's there and we fix our eyes on him. That's great. You know, we, we often look to one another, don't we? We look to people. And that's absolutely right. You know, we see people. 
We admire people. We look at people. And so God says, I'm giving you a people. I'm giving you a person. I'm giving you Jesus. Who we can see. Who came in the flesh. Who became a human being. Who was incarnate so we can fix our eyes on him and understand him. It's difficult sometimes to fix our eyes on a spirit. God is spirit. Eternal. and Unchangeable. Infinite. Sometimes hard for us, so he says, Don't fix your eyes on Jesus, who you can see and who has done what he has done. Great coach. And he says, I will be there for you, and I will give you the strength you need, and uh, I will uh, take you through all that will uh, threaten to make you stumble and fall because I've defeated it on the cross. Jesus Christ is there. And that is great, isn't it? We rely on each other. We love each other. We lean on each other as much as we, it helps us to point to Jesus. Isn't that good? So don't, in your Christian life, make people dependent on you because you become the savior figure. I need lots of people to depend on me, you know, because I'm so, I'll point, I'll show them how to live. That's just a Messiah complex. We don't need that. There's plenty of that around the world. We need people who will, have people lean on them, and we will say to them, look to Jesus. And we encourage one another to look to Jesus. And it's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ, but he will use us. Fix our eyes on Jesus. That's the best, isn't that the best advice I can ever give? It's the best advice you can have, and it's the, best, the only advice you need. If you're stumbling, if you're falling, if you're grumbling, if you're finding fault, if you're wanting to give up, if you're complaining, if you're moaning, if you're jealous, if you're critices, uh, critical, if you are broken, if you're guilty, what you need is not a better community. It's not a better theology. You need a better vision. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus and focus on Jesus Christ. That's why we've done 750. Because it's about focusing our lives and one another on Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on him. Focus your attention on him like the runner running the race towards the end. You fix your eyes on the things he speaks about here, about heaven, about victory, about patience, about his grace, about his strength, and all these things. Fix your eyes on them. Focus your attention on them. That is how we will grow and how we will develop. It's an old story, isn't it? I wish I had something new to say. But I, I don't. And I'm glad I don't at the same time. Because this is where we channel what we do. We need the tactics of taking responsibility, getting rid of our entanglements and sin. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what he says here. And uh, the last thing that I want to mention just briefly uh, within this tactics section, and with that we'll close, is appreciate your, appreciate your surroundings. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and that's looking back to the examples of the previous chapter, the great, well, we we debunked it last week a little bit about them being great heroes of the faith because they're just broken and fallen just like us. Uh, It's it's Christ who uh, kept them. But appreciate your surroundings. And the idea is of this runner who's exhausted and who is tempted to, having hit the wall just to give up. And there's just this roar from the crowds. Keep on going. Don't give up. And you know what you've heard athletes saying that or sports people saying that? Well, I was kept going by the crowd. The crowd enabled. The, just the roar of the crowd kept me going. 
And that's what's been spoken of here. The writer to the, the Hebrews is saying, look, you've got a cloud, a cloud and a crowd of spectators just like you who have finished the race. Ordinary Abraham, ordinary Moses, ordinary Rahab, sinners saved by grace who have finished the race and who are at God's right hand and they're there and they're cheering you on today. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know exactly what that means. But what is happening is that they're saying, look, if I can do it, so can you. Put your own name in there. You know, if Abraham could do it with his lying and his cheating and his uh, you know, deception and if David could do it with his adultery and his pride and if Rahab could do it with her prostituted background, if these people could do it in the strength of God, well, so can we. And they're saying that today. If, if we can do it, you, you're not alone. Don't lose heart. You might have thought they would give up, but they haven't. They've kept on going. And may that be an encouragement to us that there's lots of people, not just from this cloud of witnesses in Hebrews, but right through two millennium of Christianity since Christ who have done it. Ordinary people, people who grew up and were born in Edinburgh or in the Highlands or in different parts of the world who have kept going because Christ kept them. Why? Because Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith and he's done it. But he wants us to remember our privilege of life and the privilege of getting rid of sin and the privilege of knowing the truth and allowing the truth to set us free. I'm going to just say in conclusion, if you're not a Christian today, are you afraid of becoming a Christian because it will turn your life upside down? Or are you afraid because you think it's too tough? I'm going to have to swim against the tide. Can I encourage you not to be deceived? The alternative of not coming to faith in Jesus is vain and empty and is governed by ultimately by death and destruction and separation from God and from life. Rejecting Christ is the greatest destructive act that you can ever do. And he empowers you and will give you the faith and loves you more than you can ever imagine to enable you to keep going. I hear many people saying, I don't think I can become a Christian. I don't think I'll be able to keep it up, keep it going. He says, I'm the author. I'm the perfecter. Fix your eyes on me. Amen. Let's pray briefly. Father God, we ask and pray that we would be able to fix our eyes on you. We thank you that your gospel is no self-help manual, nor is it about our abilities. So we come today because we recognize that very often we stumble and fall. Very often we fail and very often we take our eyes off you. But we rejoice that you you forgive us 70 times 7, which means relentlessly as we come back to you. And you love us and you're a loving father and you have gifted us faith and you will help us persevere and enable us, Lord, to hold on to that and to love you and to work through the entanglements and the sins that so often make us stumble and fall. And uh, may we take responsibility for them.
and for the deception of our hearts. And may we turn to you for hope and for forgiveness and for a future. We thank you for how relevant this old book of Hebrews is to our modern Christian walk. And we pray that we would uh, be transformed by your truth. And we ask for the Spirit to be poured out in our lives so that that may be the case. So help us now together as we return thanks and praise and song to uh, rejoice in you and to be free from the desperate burden of uh, pleasing others or uh, doing things in our own strength and uh, needing to be at the center of life or uh, needing to be uh, messiahs ourselves to others. And let us simply uh, fall at your feet in worship. Amen.